right, we're going to turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to speak to you about the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a reading verse number 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What have ye not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Well, that's God's word, and we know that God delights to bless his word, especially when we read it publicly. Now, when you come to this section, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, I'm going to deal with it in reverse order in that I will deal with the subject of headship later, and I want to deal now with the subject of the Lord's Supper. And in this chapter, we do have the chapter of symbols, if you like. We're going to see symbolism later. And there is symbolism in what we've read already in respect to the Lord's Supper. As Christians, we do, and rightly so, place significance upon two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, it's interesting that both of them were commanded by the Lord Jesus. Both of them were actually instituted as well by the Lord Jesus. And remarkably, both of them were participated in by him as well. And that makes them special. So baptism and the Lord's Supper have that in common, commanded by Christ, instituted by Christ, and participated in by the Lord Jesus. And I want to speak to you about the Lord's Supper. Now, the biblical background, the context is in the Gospel record, and the Gospel records direct us to the night before his death. 
And on that night, if you know the history, you'll know that the Lord gathered his disciples in the upper room to eat the Passover meal. And during that Passover meal, he took elements of the meal, he took bread and he took a cup of wine, and he instituted something new. So he took what was existing, and from that, he brought in something new. And he said, this do in remembrance of me. Now, when we as Christians, when you look into Scripture, you find this, that the nation of Israel, they look back at Passover time to a point in their history that was their redemption as a nation. So they look back to that redemptive point in history. They go back to the time when, as a nation, they were brought out of Egypt. And as a nation, they remember that in the Passover. Now, the Lord Jesus is not instructing us as Christians to do the same. But rather, he instituted a supper that goes back to the redemptive point in our history as Christians which is not a national deliverance from Egypt, but rather it was the death of Christ on the cross and the shedding of his precious blood that brought about our spiritual release from bondage in salvation. That's the point of our contact with God's redemption. It's the cross of Christ. It's not the Red Sea. It's not the strong arm of the Lord bringing them out of bondage and through the wilderness journey as a nation remember, and rightly so. But rather, it is that singular act of Christ where he shed his blood as the Lamb of God. We refer back to that as our reference point in relation to our redemptive history. The Lord Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, for us transformed the Passover meal into a supper, a remembrance supper. You see, for me as a Christian, the Passover has no applicable significance. It's interesting to study. It is instructive to study for us. But for us, the Lord's Supper is the memorial that Christ himself instituted. So as a Christian, I don't continue with the Passover. I am, however, interested in what the Lord Jesus brought about on that night which is of importance for me as a Christian. Now you see this in the practice of the early church. In the practice of the early church, the Lord's Supper became an intrinsic part of the function of the local church in Jerusalem after the ascension of Christ. We read that in the early study this afternoon. They that gladly received his word were baptised, 3,000 souls added, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread. And that expression is descriptive of what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as the Lord's Supper. So if you follow through Acts, there is much to learn. For example, it would appear in the early days of the church that the church in Jerusalem met together in small groups in houses. I mean, after all, there were thousands converted at once. They had no large mega church building they could all gather in or anything like that. And so they met together as best they knew in these remarkable early days. They ate their meals together. They shared their possessions. They gave hospitality and they broke bread together. Now remember it was remarkable. This time of year in Jerusalem was was annually remarkable because there were people flocking towards Jerusalem for Passover time from all parts of the then known world. 
Jerusalem was full of people. And there were Christians converted who didn't live in Jerusalem but were visiting Jerusalem. And they'd been told to wait. And they came and they were saved on that day of Pentecost. And those who were saved showed hospitality to others and and shared possessions. For how were they going to live? What were they going to eat? Where were they going to stay? It was remarkable. It was unusual. It was a dynamic beginning. Jim, this just come down. There's a dynamic beginning in these early days. And so you read in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to verse 47, all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. These were unusual days. These were days that would not be repeated in normal day-to-day existence down through history, but unusual early days. It says they continue with one, daily with one accord in the temple, broke bread from house to house, ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They were praising God. They were having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to the church daily, such as should be saved. And then you go from there and you read through the book of the Acts. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you keep reading. No mention of the Lord's Supper. Keep reading. Until you get to Acts chapter 20. And the context is quite different. Time has passed. It's not the early heady days of Pentecost time. It's not thousands of souls being saved from different localities who just so happened to be in Jerusalem at that festival time. Now you have Christians in their own community, in settled circumstances. And they're meeting together as a local church. And you read about them in Acts chapter 20. And it says in verse 7 that upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now life is a more normal pattern. Folk of a working week. It's different from these early heady days. Things had settled down. It appears from this scripture that what we can learn is that the Christians were gathering together once a week and it it was the first day of the week and on that day they were breaking bread as part of their gathering. So you read in Acts chapter 20 and verse 11 that when he was therefore come up again. There had been an instant someone had fallen out a window and a great miracle of healing had taken place and they brought him back up And it says this, that when he was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even to the break of day, so he departed. Now, what do we learn from that? That when the Bible uses the expression breaking of bread, it is distinct from eating a meal. Because it says that when they had broken bread and eaten. So that they had remembered the Lord as an assembly in Acts chapter 20. And the breaking of bread actually took place around about midnight. And after Paul preached, it was part of a long night of fellowship. And that's it in relation to the book of the Acts. So what do we learn from the Gospels and from Acts? We learn this. The Lord instituted a supper at Passover meal. He explained its significance and he asked the disciples to remember him by carrying out his request. 
The Christians at Jerusalem were obedient to that command. They broke bread together as part of other spiritual activity and hospitality and did so in their homes. At Troas, the assembly came together on the first day of the week to break bread. Whilst doing so, they also had fellowship, teaching, and they ate a meal together when the Apostle Paul was visiting and preaching to them. Christians at that time, interestingly, no longer ate the Passover, and it does appear that they still had a meal together, as we will, and as part of that, they broke bread. Now you can understand why. They would associate the breaking of bread instituted by the Lord with a meal, with the Passover meal. But the Passover is no longer as significant for them as it once was. And so they don't remember the Passover anymore. They remember the Lord, but they obviously ate a meal in relation to it. Then you come into the epistles and you find this, that the church at Corinth are doing the same thing. They're also having a meal connected with the Lord's Supper. Except they were abusive in the way that they gathered together with their meal. Paul refers in Corinth to their gathering together on the first day of the week in chapter 16 in relation to an offering to be lifted when the Christians were together. Now it must be clear, and not read into Scripture what is not there, that from the Acts of the Apostles and from the Gospel records, there is no instruction from the Lord himself as to how or where or even when the supper was to be shared. The Lord himself only spoke of the symbols and their significance and instructed them to remember. That's the extent of his direct instruction to the disciples. You then go into the book of Acts and you have two different and quite different examples given to us. You have Jerusalem and Troas. You cannot say they're the same. They're very different. Jerusalem is at the beginning of the church without a settled population and in rather remarkable circumstances. Troas is a settled assembly in a locality with regularity of meeting and function and they were gathering on the first day of the week and as part of that they were breaking bread. Then you come to 1 Corinthians and you read in chapter 11 and you read two things. You read teaching by the Apostle Paul that is number one, corrective and number two, explanatory. So he gives instruction on the meaning and spiritual implications of the supper. And that's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, some people call it communion, some call it Lord's Supper, some call it breaking of bread, and so forth. And depending on what church you visit, some churches uh, have communion once a year, once six months, once three months, or something like that. And there'll be a lot of different practices in relation to this. So we need to come to Scripture to understand what the Bible actually says in relation to this in terms of its significance, its meaning. And then also we need to see if our practice fits what the Bible says and not make the Bible fit what our practice is. 
So if we come to it in that way, then we can gain an understanding of what Scripture actually says. So then let's just go down the verses and see what is taught here by the Apostle. The Lord has given his instruction, remember me, use these symbols and so do it. You see the practice in Jerusalem, you see the practice in Troas. Now in Corinth, Paul is going to teach. So then he says in verse number 17, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. So let's build this as we go down through the verses, and we'll go, I trust, slowly enough that we gain an understanding of it, and don't skip bits. So notice, first of all, he says, I want to praise you, but I can't. Now we're going to see later on in relation to headship, in the first part of the chapter, he was able to praise them. But in relation to this, he is not able to praise them. So chapter 11, verse 2, he's praising. Here in chapter 11, verse 17, he is not praising. In relation to headship, we're going to see that they were doing the right thing without understanding why. So he says, I want you to know the meaning and the significance of what you do in relation to headship. I want you to know what that means. You're doing it, and he commends them, but they were doing it without a full understanding. When you come to the Lord's Supper, they were not doing the right thing. So he needs to correct their practice as well as instruct them as to its significance. So he says, I praise you not. In fact, he goes beyond that. Look at the text and you'll see that he says, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, it would have been better if you'd stayed at home. You are gathering together and your gatherings are not helpful and they are not building you up. They are actually being destructive. So, You're coming together and you are in a worse state after the meeting than before it. That's where they had got to. Because they had degraded what Christ gave them and turned it into a selfish, gluttonous, drunken exercise of indulgence. You can hardly credit it, but it's true. And they were in a condition here that they had kind of slapped the Lord's Supper onto the end of this feasting. And he has to say to them, I'm going to tell you just how bad that is. Notice verse 18. He begins to explain his statements. Whenever you see the word for at the beginning of a verse, you know that it is going to explain things that have gone before. So he's, he's opening up his explanation of his statement. He makes the bold assertion, you are coming together not for the better, but for the worse. Folks say, well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Let me tell you, he says, for. For first of all, he says, I've got a few things to say to you. Here's number one. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. When you come together in the church. Now we have seen from our study earlier, he's not referring to a building, not even a location. 
He is referring to the assembly of Christians gathering together, committed to each other and to the Lord in fellowship as a local church. Assembling as Christians. Now Paul is dealing with problems that related to their church gatherings. And this is one of them. Now I do think it's important to understand that when he speaks about the Lord's Supper, it is in the context of a church gathering. He's not saying that when you're at home and when you're remembering the Lord by yourself or even amongst your family, he says no. He says, this is something I want to speak to you about and it's in relation to a church gathering when you're assembled together. So when you come together in the church, he said, when you assemble as believers, he said, there are divisions among you. He says, I keep on hearing again and again, that's the grammar, that there are schisms, divisions. Now, what is that? Well, it basically refers to a difference of opinion. That's the kind of basic idea. So when the church came together, instead of uniting together in fellowship, they were arguing with one and each other and dividing. Corinth was a divided church on more than one level. There was social division, theological division, lots of arguments going on. There was a kind of scrambling for position and for to see whose gift could be displayed the best and whose voice could be heard the most. Chaos. And that was an evidence of carnality. He's already told them that in chapter 3. He says, You are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Now, mind you, that's a challenge for all of us. He's saying you're behaving as if you're not Christians. This is not Christian conduct. This is not the life of Christ. Christ is not being displayed among you because you're fighting and dividing and there's strife and there's envy. It's carnality, it's fleshliness. Look at verse 19, which seems a strange verse. For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. What's this idea of heresies? Well, it comes from the root word that stresses the idea of a choice. simply means a choice, usually by a group who hold a given opinion. It's translated again and again in the Gospels by the word sect. It's used in a neutral sense in Acts 24 when it speaks about the sect of the Nazarenes. It's used in a bad sense in Galatians 5.20 where it refers to one of the works of the flesh as heresies. There it has to do with selfish contention. But it's to do with choice. So he says there must be heresies. That expression there must be is interesting when you study it, for you find this, that expression is often used of something that God allows that is necessary because of the will of God. For example, it is used in this context. It is necessary that Jesus suffer, die, and rise again. It is necessary that Jesus Christ go to Jerusalem, the Bible says. 
Now, what took place at Jerusalem was the expression of wickedness, but it was necessary. It must be. In God's purpose, God allowed this. It was part of God's purpose, and we can hardly comprehend it, but it was part of God's purpose that God would work out his purpose. It must be. It is necessary. Paul says, in your local church, it is necessary. There must be heresies. It is not that God produces them, but God allows them. God allows strife from time to time. God allows differences. Why does he do that? That they which are approved may be made manifest. God is approving certain people and making them manifest to you. Listen, you will never know who the peacemakers are amongst you unless there's conflict. It's adversity and contention that actually the true godly people among you shine through and demonstrate themselves as to who they really are and what they really are. You know, I know, that it's in time of pressure, contention and difficulty that true character is displayed. When everything's fine, there's never a problem or a ripple, everyone just seems the same. You let the problem hit and you'll soon see what people are made of. You'll soon see true character. Trouble has a way of manifesting spirituality and carnality. And God sometimes allows that amongst us, that our true character may be made visible and seen. That's what Paul says. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to wine, not greedy or filthy looker, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be what? Proved. Proved. Who are you going to commit responsibility to in the local church? Well, if there's never an issue and never a problem, you simply won't know. Who can be trusted? You won't know who can be proved. You won't know the true character of those. But you certainly will when difficulties come. Servants must be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon. Being found blameless. Then come to verse 20. So Paul's saying, listen, I know there's trouble among you. And it's not good, but God has a purpose in it. And you'll see the true character of those in your assembly through it. So he says in verse 20, When you come together therefore into one place, notice again he's referring to the saints gathering together. Again, into one place. So he's not saying here that their practice was that they gathered in house groups, community groups, remembered the Lord in a kind of fragmented fashion. But he's saying that as a local church, they were coming together into one place as one entity to do this. And they were going through, sadly, what had become a ritual. And so he says, this is not the Lord's Supper. Now, mind you, that's a very challenging verse. Tomorrow morning, I'll gather with the believers in Bridge of Weir, 
and it will be the time for the Lord's Supper. And I will go along, as the other believers will, and we will say in our hymns, and maybe even from Scripture, that this is what we're doing. This is the Lord's Supper. Yet, if we are in the condition that the Corinthians were in, it is not the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter what we call it. It's what he calls it that matters. So I can put in the notices what I like, and I can put over the door what I like, and I can make whatever pronouncements I like and say, I'm remembering the Lord. But actually, the Lord might say, no, you're not. No, you're not. Because it's not a ritual. It's not just taking a a bite of a loaf of bread and a sip from a cup of wine. It's not empty orthodoxy or or ritualism. It's an actual engagement with Christ as represented symbolically in these things. You engage with Christ, you remember him and have to be in the right spiritual condition to do so. So this is not ritualism. And look at what they were doing in verse 21. This is why it was not the Lord's Supper for them. He explains, there's our word again, for. For in eating every one taketh before other his own supper. One's hungry and other is drunken. So they're bringing their, they bring their packed lunch. You know, it's like you, you folks coming today, you see, and uh, you're, you know, been told to bring your own food. You know, in the States they call it potluck, which is a kind of strange thing anyway, but they call it potluck. It's maybe potluck what you get rather than what you bring. But anyway, you, you come together and you, you bring your own, we bring your food, you see. Now, if you were me, you would just go to KFC and bring a bucket or something like that. That would be me, yeah. And at the back. <laughs> Some of you um, are maybe a wee bit more cultured than that, and you'd have a lovely packed lunch all laid out and all the rest of it. And then some of you might be too poor to have any food. So you don't have any food. Nothing. Literally nothing. And there's me, and you can see how farcical it is. There's me sitting in my bucket of KFC, and there's you, your Marks and Spencer's, retrace sandwiches, and all the rest of it. And we're all sitting scoffing our food. You're sitting in the corner, you've got nothing. So what does that say? What does that say? Is this fellowship? Well, of course, we would hardly even need to investigate it because he said, look, you have got this meal and you're remembering the Lord as part of it. This meal is a denial of what you are saying you're doing. The Lord's Supper is an expression of fellowship and in your meal you are doing the opposite. You're manifesting selfishness. Remember the early church, and this is 20 years after it now, the early church sold their possessions, shared their goods, opened their homes. It was a wonderful display of fellowship. And 20 years later, they're huddled in a building in each corner with their own little food, and they're eating, and they're even going to excess, and they're eating and drinking and drunkenness and all that kind of thing. And they are not sharing. So he says... One is hungry, one's drunk, they're bringing in their own food, and instead of the celebration of their unity and fellowship, they're actually showing just how this was missing and lacking amongst them. So he condemns them. Verse 22, what, he says. What? 
Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Listen, if you're going to come together for a meal in that fashion and you won't share what you have, don't bring it at all. If you only want to eat your own food, eat it in your own house. Have you not houses to eat and to drink? Do you despise the church of God, remembering that is a group of people and not a building? Do you shame them that have not? What he says, and you can see him getting worked up, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I'm not going to praise you in this. And it's as if Paul is groping for an explanation for this disgraceful conduct of selfishness. How dare they take bread and wine that speaks of the most selfless act that all history has ever witnessed and do so manifesting selfishness in relation to food? How dare they? What an affront to God. But mind you, we can do exactly the same. And we can live selfish lives. And then say that we are indebted and worshipping the selfless saviour. It's maybe the greatest act of selfishness at all. So he says, I'm not going to praise you. Far from it. So he says, I want to teach you what happened. I'm going to take you back to basics, he says. So he says, I'm going to take you right back to that night when it was instituted. That's verse 23. You see, our relationships and attitudes have to be consistent with what we do. There has to be consistency between action and word, between character and conduct, or it renders the conduct meaningless. So the Holy Spirit in his providence allowed this to take place. Why? So their true character could be revealed. You just saw how selfish and carnal they were. Now the instruction takes place. Verse 23. And he says, I have received of the Lord direct communication from the Lord himself. Let me be clear. This is not church ordinances written hundreds of years into church history. Adapted to Western culture and civilization. This is not crusader stuff. This is not practice that has evolved through generations. This is the direct revelation from the risen Christ to his apostles and communicated thereafter. Not human opinion, not man-made handed down tradition. First Corinthians, I understand, almost certainly historically was written before any of the Gospels. And if that be so, this is the first statement of God, as I would say, in print, obviously not originally, but the first recorded statement in this way regarding the Lord's Supper. He says, I delivered it unto you. I like that. You see, Paul says, listen, when I was in Corinth, I taught you this. I didn't just tell you to do it. I taught you the significance of it. I'm going to remind you of what you knew and you are not ignorant of this, but you're not obedient to it. 
So I delivered this to you. He wants to set this in a historical context and then says the same night in which he was betrayed. The Lord, Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed. So he gives historical context. Quite remarkable how he does it. It's not how I would have done it. What was the greatest historical significance of that time that would have been readily known by the Christians? It would have been Passover. If you want to link the Lord's Supper to a date and to a context, that would have been the obvious one. The last Passover. On the night of the last Passover... Linking that great redemptive remembrance to the institution of the remembrance of the the fulfilment of the Passover in the death of Christ, the Lamb of God being slain. You can see the connection. Many a sermon would have flowed from that connection. It's not what it says. Because the greater historical significance was not the Passover, but rather the betrayal of the Lord Jesus. It's more significant. He said it was the night in which he was betrayed. You know, I can just see Paul increasing the pressure upon these Corinthians. What you treat so lightly, symbolically, and therefore in reality, took place the night in which he was betrayed. You've been betraying him ever since by your conduct, really. He was betrayed on that night. It's the stark contrast that betrayal sets. Someone wrote this here in the most beautiful ordinance that the Lord has ever given for the celebration of his church. Set against it is the terrible hatred and cruelty of betrayal. But it simply serves to give it all the more beauty set against such a dark background. He says, remember me. That plaintive request, remember me, just as he was being betrayed. What's the background? Well, the Passover meal, very quickly, because if you understand the Passover meal, then you understand what comes out of it. This was Passover night. Now, the, the, the Jews had developed it to this extent that during that Passover meal, there would be a host. The host, the man who kind of coordinated it all and who was hosting the meal. There would have been four cups within that meal. Four cups drunk. I read this. That number one was what they called the blessed cup. It was always red wine, symbolic of the blood of the lamb at the Passover in Egypt. Cup number one. They would take that cup, then they would have bitter herbs dipped in a kind of fruit sauce. Then they would sing Psalm 113, 114, and some of the Hallel Psalms, after the explanation of the meaning of the Passover, then they took the second cup. After the second cup, the leader, the host of the meal, would take unleavened bread, and he would bless God, break it, hand it out to everyone, then the meal began. So the breaking of bread signified the commencement of the meal. Then the Passover meal was eaten. When the Passover meal was done, the host then prayed and took the third cup. After that, they sang the rest of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 115 through to Psalm 118. 
After they'd sung all of that, before they were dismissed, the fourth cup was taken, and this was to celebrate the coming kingdom. You see the ritual, four cups. Somewhere along the line at the point of unleavened bread being broken before the meal, the Lord Jesus took the bread, symbolizing the exodus, and he broke it and he said what? He said, this is my body. My body. He's changing it. If you think of these Jews who had practiced this annually, it would be ingrained into their psyche. And the Lord Jesus takes the unleavened bread in the middle of what was so familiar to them. And he changes the symbolism and he said, this bread, my body. The symbolism would not be lost in those present. And he took that bread and then after the meal, for it says after he supped, that is after the meal was done, he took a cup. So the bread and then the cup. And when he had given thanks, it says, verse 24, he break the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you or given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Now let me clarify something. He says, this is my body. Now the Roman Catholic Church and some others teach what they call transubstantiation. Don't ask me to spell it. But it is a doctrine that would teach essentially that when they practice communion and the wafer goes in the mouth, it becomes the body of Christ. In fact, they actually say that. Body of Christ, body of Christ, body of Christ. And they take the words of Christ, this is my body, and give it a literal interpretation so that Christ was saying that the bread he held in his hand became his physical body as it was eaten by his disciples. Now, there's a theological significance to that change, which is not biblical. I don't have time to go into that. Suffice to say this. The Lord Jesus did not speak literally, because so to do would have been senseless. He was handling the bread with his body. It wasn't in resurrection ground. He wasn't a spirit. He was there physically. There was his body, and he points to the bread and says, this is my body. Well, obviously, it wasn't his physical body, because his physical body was there. He was speaking figuratively and metaphorically, as he often did. You cannot understand the, the teaching of Christ without understanding his use of that type of language. I am the door, the field is the world. So we could go on. He often used metaphors and figures. So when he took the bread, he is saying, this bread symbolizes my body. And he gave thanks. Now that's the word from which we get, some get Eucharist. And he broke the bread so all could share the common loaf. Now the body to the Jewish mind represented the total man, the whole incarnate life of Christ. And the whole of the incarnation is summed up in that expression. This is my body. For you. For you. He then said this do. Now there is no need to overcomplicate his instruction. This do. 
Take, eat. Verse 2. Think about what he has done and consider what he asks me to do for him. It's so simple. It's not difficult. This do. The importance lies in the obedience to his command. And he says this do in remembrance. Listen, by so doing, we call him into a... You know, we don't... We don't um, disengage our minds and hearts in this process. It's not just that we eat some bread, but we take that that symbolizes the body of Christ, and as we do so, we remember him. We engage. It's not mindless, and it ought not to be heartless. Someone said this, you can come and you can drink the cup and eat the bread and your mind's a million miles away. And if that's the case, you have not remembered the Lord. No matter what you did, until you've cleared out all the other things in your mind and called him into your conscious presence. You see how easy it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Then in verse 25 he said, after the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, now I would think maybe the third cup, maybe the fourth, but certainly after the Passover meal was eaten for after he had supped. And he said this, now mark this. He said, and there's lots of misunderstandings about this, this cup is the new covenant. Now let's just grapple with that for a moment. What did he mean? The new promise. Covenant just means a promise, a commitment. In my blood. Listen, when you go to the Old Testament, as explained through the book of Hebrews, you find this, that God made promises to his ancient people Israel, and he sealed the deal. He sealed his promise. He sealed the agreement with blood. Not the blood of Christ, but the blood of animals. And the sacrificial system was the ratification of God's agreement with his people. But this new agreement, this new promise... This new covenant is ratified not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of Christ. Now, I don't know how much you know about contract. I used to know a lot more than I know now. I've forgotten it all. But I know this in Scotland, which is a superior legal system, of course. I know that in Scotland, if you sign a contract or if you, no, if you make a contract, that contract needs to be ratified to the legal binding authority. So if I agree to something, how do I ratify it? I sign in the dotted line. You know, I just took, I got another car there. It's made in voyage down here. And uh, at the weekend, I went in, and uh, the chap outside, you know, is a very flamboyant salesman. You see, so he, he was doing his negotiation, and he put his hand out, do we have a deal? You know, it was a very kind of flamboyant. So, I, yes, we've got a deal, you know. But I still have to go in and sign the document. You see, that document is evidence and ratification of the agreement. Sealed the deal. So then, this cup is the new covenant. In the Old Testament, God said to Israel, I will lead you to the promised land. I will pass over your house. I will not execute your firstborn in the land of Egypt if you ratify the agreement. So they had to take a lamb. And they to put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and the lintel. 
throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God had to continue to renew the promise over and over and over again because they kept breaking their side of the agreement constantly. There had to be continual sacrifices by them. But you see, when you come into the New Testament, God's making a new promise. I will forgive all your sins for all time. I will make one sacrifice forever. That will be Christ. His one sacrifice and his one ratification by blood end the sacrificial system for good. You no longer need to go back to the blood of the Passover. You come to the blood of the cross and the blood of the cross has sufficient value and more than sufficient value to deal with all sins for all time for all men. You see, the Hebrews repeatedly shed blood constantly saying, I'm sorry. I bind myself again to your promise. I've sinned again. Please forgive me. Here's my sacrifice again, and again, and again, and again, constantly. The new covenant's different. It was announced in Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to this. I think I've got maybe 10 minutes to do this. I, I think, and I just saw the pizzas arrive, so I'll not be too long. The new covenant was announced. I won't read the scripture, it's too long, but I'll refer you to it. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 32 to 34. That new covenant has lots of expressions, the covenant of peace, my covenant, and so forth. And in Ezekiel, it's referred to as well, the phrase, a new heart, a new spirit, an everlasting covenant used by Isaiah. There's so much in the Old Testament. And the terms of that covenant were this. There was the internalization of God's law, verse 33 of Jeremiah chapter 31. Soul devotion to God, verse 33. Universal knowledge of God, verse 34. The forgiveness of sin and iniquity, verse 34. Israel's perpetual national existence, verses 35 to verse 37, and provision that Jerusalem was to be permanently rebuilt, verses 38 to verse 40. God made new promises to Israel, and they were made to Israel. And that old covenant which was ratified by the blood of animals, now this new covenant is ratified by the blood of Christ in the same way a signature with ink ratifies a contract or promise today. And the cup of the new covenant was made on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood of the covenant was Exodus 24. This is the blood of the new covenant, Matthew 28. You say, well, that's great. Israel have got new promises and they're sealed with the blood of Christ. What's that got to do with us? Has it got anything to do with us? Well, it does. Listen, although the church is partaking of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, the material and national provisions are not being fulfilled with the church. They aren't. Only the spiritual aspects of this new covenant are inaugurated for this age. The territorial and political aspects, although part of God's new covenant promises, await future fulfillment. They will have their fulfillment, but not today. And as Gentiles, saved by grace, we can by faith enjoy these spiritual blessings that flow out of this covenant. I could go on, time does not permit me in this. But the Lord Jesus took this cup and he said, this cup 
speaking of his blood, seals the state covenant. And the promises that we enjoy, which are explained in some of the epistles, have an echo of that new covenant. I will remember their sins and iniquities no more. Gone forever. I don't need to take an animal every day and say sorry to God and seek his forgiveness and and seek to make it right with God by the shedding of blood. I just need to get on my knees and call to mind that blood has already been shed and that forgiveness has already been granted and it's cleansing I need from the defilement of that sin rather than forgiveness from its judicial consequences. He took the cup. And then he said this, as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup. Now how often is not stated here? Regularity is inferred. And he said, it is a regular remembrance and it is a temporary proclamation. It's only until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death. But I can't leave this without speaking about the warnings that come at the end. About our spiritual condition. Look at verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Now there is a sense in which none of us are worthy to do this. Of ourselves. That's not what he's speaking about. It's our spiritual condition. We shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He's already told them in what sense they were unworthy and their conduct made them unworthy. What would make me unworthy? Bitterness toward another Christian, unconfessed sin, unrepented sin, whatever. It could be a, it could be a multitude of things. If I'm not in the right spiritual condition, I am guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now that, if you set your mind to ponder that, that's a most serious thing he says. Because you are treating him in an unworthy manner. Someone, and I'm quoting, who tramples with the feet of indifference or sinfulness the body and blood as represented in the elements of the Lord's Supper is guilty of dishonouring, mocking, treating with indifference and hypocrisy Christ himself, for he is represented in those symbols. How you treat this supper is how you treat Christ. Because this is a very real encounter with Christ. And failure to acknowledge the reality and seriousness of that brings about judgment. So he says in verse 28, stop and think. Stop and think. Let a man examine himself. Rigorous self-examination. My life, my motives, my attitude towards the Lord, towards the Lord's Supper, towards other believers. Am I careless, flippant? Am I indifferent? Do I entertain sin? Am I unrepentant? Do I mock the whole thing? Self-examination. Then he says, so let him eat. Don't stay away. Just make sure we're in the right spiritual condition to come. Otherwise, we eat and drink damnation to ourselves. That word damnation is really the word chastisement, discipline. 
It's not eternal judgment. If I'm not treating the reality of Christ with seriousness and dignity and purity, I am exposing myself to the discipline of God. The Corinthians were so extreme in their sin that God's response was extreme. And he afflicted them with death and with sickness. Folks say, well, you know, that was the early days of Christianity. That that was 20 years after Pentecost. That wasn't the early days of Christianity. You're past the early days of Christianity. You're merging into normality. And what God did then, God can do now. And he can bring discipline of whatever seriousness is necessary according to his purpose. Because he is jealous of his son and jealous of the supper in which his son is remembered. It's a tremendous privilege to remember the Lord Jesus. To gather together in fellowship with saints as God has determined. What sweeter, more precious occasion is there? I'm sure you know it. Of a Lord's Day. In the simplicity that divine wisdom is determined. And if you've travelled a wee bit, and I have a, a real privilege of being places, you know, I've sat in places and broke bread with believers in abject poverty. Literally Poverty. And what a blessing to know that what they have done is as obedient to Scripture as what we were doing back home. This too. See the divine wisdom? In remembrance of me. It's a great privilege. Let's not abuse it. Let's value it. And if I don't remember the Lord Jesus because I'm not in fellowship in an assembly, then I shouldn't. I should get into fellowship in an assembly and remember him in accordance with his word. And if I think it a light thing and something that I just miss for no great reason, I'm very glad that the Lord didn't consider me in those terms when he went to the cross. Because I was too important to him for him to behave to me like that it's a serious thing but a joyful thing let's just pray and we'll give thanks to the Lord. God our Father we bow